It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. First and foremost, I think it's important for us to come clean. If you are a new listener, that Whitney and I are not currently parents. We have had some wonderful guests here on the podcast talking about some interesting parental perspectives and what it's like to raise little ones in the world from our guests, previous guests, Adam Yasmin to Letha Coughlin, Justin Polgar. We've had many incredible parental perspectives here on the podcast. And one thing that has been interesting over the course of this whole COVID-19 situation, especially during the time of this recording, has been really hearing a lot of stories and getting to eavesdrop in on some of the struggles and challenges and triumphs that a lot of Whitney and my friends have been going through who are parents. And again, having no direct experience, we're getting this all through osmosis. We're getting this all through observation. And I think one of the first and probably most obvious questions, Danielle, having you here on the podcast is, yeah, what the heck has this time been like for you with your little ones, being a parent, being a parental coach? And what is this tsunami of uncertainty and challenge and creativity brought to your home life? Like, what's that, what's that been like for you? Yeah, it's been a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's a loaded answer. <laughs> what does that mean? What does a lot mean? <laughs> I think the the toughest part from the beginning was that it was just so unexpected and no one saw this coming. And we all just kind of went on spring break or we're doing our living our best March life. And then it all just kind of like the floor dropped out from under us. And there is so much debate right now between what place like school has in our society, but we're all realizing what happens when it's not there. And (laughs) It's a disruptor to everything, every aspect of our life as parents. And I have two daughters. They are six and seven. They're going into first and second grade. And so as of, I think it was like March 18th, they've been home with me every day while I work from home. And we've also lived in a two-bedroom apartment this whole time. We've been living here for about three years. And it's not ideal. (laughs) it's not ideal to have kids in this tiny space with me that we had chose because we were investing in a Montessori private education and as well as as extracurricular activities and some other things that were very social for us to kind of offset the minimalist lifestyle that we had in this apartment. And then all of that fell away to really just be us and the apartment, you know, left over. And so it just it has been a little difficult keeping them entertained and learning and growing while I'm trying to get work done. And my husband has been working at a restaurant that has stayed open this whole time, thankfully, but he hasn't been here to kind of manage that load either. So in the parent world, it's the hardest job in the world anyway, not just because of the workload, but because of the level of influence and importance in what we're doing of you know shaping these young minds. But then to add the dynamic of just having to be three roles at once with really no reprieve and no support system has just really exacerbated the problems that were already there, but now they're just like magnified with no end in sight. 
Oh, wow. Okay. So two things I want to just interject briefly. I went to Montessori school for most of my early education. So so shout out to the Montessori system. Yeah, we love it. Yeah, it's super wonderful. And my mom, you know, this was I'm dating myself by saying this, but (laughs) this was back in in the 80s and uh, in early 90s. But that education and their whole format um, was was so, so interesting. In fact, for the listener, especially if you have children, you're looking at alternatives to public school education, we will link in the show notes at our website, wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com to Montessori curriculum so you can investigate more. But for me, Danielle, that was such a wonderful match because growing up, I was a really outspoken, outlandish, creatively wild child. And Mm -hmm. I think in some ways, my mom was trying to corral that creativity and put it somewhere where it could flourish. And you know, in her estimation, we grew up in Detroit and she was like, I don't think the public school system is going to be a good container for all that creativity and all those outrageous ideas. And I just remember growing up and feeling so much permission and so much encouragement in that Montessori system to be like, you're wonderful and you're wacky and you're unique and you're super hyper and creative and we're going to find channels for that. So I love that. Every kid should hear that. Yeah. yeah. And, and I love that your girls are getting that system of education because I just rave about it to this day. And I don't know if it's in the cards for me, but if a child were ever to come through in my life, I would absolutely consider a Montessori education for my child as well. So that's just so rad. That was a long-winded rant, but I'm just like, yay, Montessori. That's so cool to hear because it still is a very kind of unheard of. Which is really interesting because I remember I had a friend that went to Montessori growing up and I always thought it was so cool. And then also what's interesting about this is for many years, I've thought that if I become a parent, I'd love to homeschool. And then like seeing a lot of people talk about (laughs) how challenging it has been during COVID has kind of shifted my perception of that. (laughs) You know, like homeschooling. It's not that I thought of it from a like rose-colored glasses perspective. I didn't think that it would be easy per se. But I really think that COVID shined a lot of light onto my eyes in terms of my perceptions of what it means to be a parent Mm -hmm. and what to do when school is not happening and things are so uncertain. So for you as both a parent and somebody that works in this whole world with parents and kids, like, have you seen a lot of this on social media as well? Like, do you think social media is doing a good job at, at showing the realities of parenting during COVID? I think there has been a lot of headlines given to the current struggle, which is needed, right? So we need to be talking about how hard these demands are that we're putting on parents and how impractical it can be for a lot of working parents to keep up their full-time workload, you know, with a two-year-old on their lap. And I've heard of a lot of, you know, complaints on social media and the memes are keeping us you know, alive and entertained. Thank God for (laughs) memes. (laughs) The real hero of 2020. But yeah, I think it's good that we're talking about it and we're highlighting it. And then the spring, you know, we were all saying like, bless you teachers, like you do such amazing work, like you are heroes, you should be paid, you know, a million dollars per hour for what you do, because we were all trying to distance learn or e-learn or homeschool and just realizing, you know, how hard it is. But then now we're putting teachers in like the worst position ever this fall where they're like fearing for their lives. And I guess society is just like, well, suck it up. Like, (laughs) it's just so bizarre because on one hand, 
we are seeing just how needed school is for everything else to be working. And like we do really lean to school as a society to be childcare during the day for full-time working parents. It is, you know, a source of healthy meals for low-income families, you know, provides transportation. It provides all of that social growth. It provides, you know, so much stimulation and, and just for kids to be able to be seen. And now without that, like we're just not, it doesn't make sense that we're not funding schools in the way that we actually are viewing their importance. <laughs> it's such a bizarre disconnect. For sure. And I think if there is a silver lining to COVID, it has shown us a lot of things that are important in a, in a new way because we can take things like that for granted. And we can become so distant from the realities of what's going on. But when something's fully taken away from us, then suddenly we realize how important it is to us. And then when things are kind of being reframed, I think like, for instance, this has given many people the opportunity to evaluate their lives and evaluate the system of how we work locally and nationally and globally. And it's certainly been really fascinating for me, again, not being a parent, but having many friends that are seeing their stories online, plus like all of these strangers who are posting about these things. I've certainly felt much more aware of what's going on and curious about it. And there's also so many things that feel very complicated. It's not going to be easy to shift them. It's going to take a while. But I'm grateful that more people almost seem like they have a voice to share what hasn't been working and try to come up with some solutions or bring up things that need to change, even if it's not going to happen this school year, maybe it could happen in the future. I almost wonder if people feel more empowered. Do you think that's the case? Like people are feeling more comfortable speaking up about what hasn't been working well? Yes, I do think is even when it comes to parents deciding what to do this fall about what is the best fit for their family, I think parents are even just beginning to feel empowered that they are the expert of their kids and they do have the power to take ownership of their kids' education in a way that they never viewed as a possibility before. You know, a lot of parents are taking on homeschooling by choice this year as a whole new thing. And these are probably parents that would have said, never in my whole life you know, will I ever homeschool my kids. But I think they're really seeing that like everyone does need to be thinking about these big, important aspects of our lives in new light and in new ways in this quote unquote new world and reevaluate and reevaluate what's worth it and what's not. And, you know, do I need to leave my job and stay home full time? Or do I need to find a job I can work from home? Or you know, is it important for me to be there for my family or make this work? So I do think that it is like a rumbling period in a good way that it has to almost get worse before it gets better. So we can have the important conversations and move things forward, you know, little by little that hopefully take over some policy changes and funding, you know, down the road. Yeah, I'm super curious, Danielle, about how your little ones, your girls are emotionally handling this whole situation. You know, one of the things that I've observed with really good friends of mine who have younger children is they talk about really missing their friends and, mm -hmm. you know, really missing school and specific ways that they would interact with their classmates and feeling 
you know, even though they're at home with mom or mom and dad or dad and dad or mom and whatever the container is that, mm-hmm. you know, they really miss their friends and they really miss that social container that is really nourishing for them. And I'm curious, you know, what, you know, on a very visceral level, depending how open you want to get about this, you know, what kind of waves of emotions have been coming up for them? And also like, what kind of, I guess, how are you guiding them through their emotional processing is I, I was trying to get to the question. I think that's the actual mm-hmm. question. Yeah. Yeah. I think like we would if we were, you know, going through the same thing as kids, it would be like, oh, yay. Like, who doesn't want an extended spring break? Like, we don't have to have to go back to school. Woohoo. You know, <laughs> there was that wave. And then that, you know, soon died off when Zoom calls and like some of the distance learning stepped in. And like we know, you know, Zoom is just not the same thing as in real life, especially for five-year-olds that are in kindergarten and are looking at 20 faces on a screen of like their friends picking their noses and they're trying to like get a lesson on something like that just doesn't work. And so they easily checked out of that, even though I saw it as valuable so that they could, you know, get books read to them from their teacher and continue to have that connection or even just be able to wave to their friends they right away saw like no engagement from that. It just didn't, it almost made it worse because then they would start to remember what they're missing. So then that would cue maybe like a meltdown or an emotional reaction, which then you as the parent on the other side of the screen are like, no, this is your only school you're getting. Like, I need you to pay attention. (laughs) So then it created that stressful moment between us, like parent to child, where they were clearly being like, I'm getting these expectations that are just like weird and I don't know what to do with this. And I just want to play because I'm at home. Like, I don't understand. And there was at least two months that we didn't see anyone, you know, like my husband went to work, but really we stayed home and didn't see a soul. And then we decided to kind of bubble, make a bubble up with another family that we were good friends with. And we decided to let just our kids play with each other while, you know, the rest of us kind of still quarantined. And that's been our saving grace this whole summer. We ended up hiring a nanny part-time to watch all four of our kids at certain times of the week so that we could both work. And then our kids have been able to play with friends almost every day. And without that, I don't know where we would be because (laughs) they have been able to get out of the house. They've been able to, you know, play in a swing set in a backyard and do just some like childhood things like dig up snails and, you know, play forts and just do all of the things that make them feel normal. You know, are they on track academically as they would have been without COVID? Probably not. But is that the main concern? Absolutely not. It's definitely their emotional well-being. That's the main concern right now. And I think that my girls are doing pretty well with it. I know my more sensitive one is as my second daughter. She definitely can like take on more of the vibe and the emotions and the stress of a situation and, you know, reacts much more bipolarly, um, you know, high highs and low lows. And she struggled with some increased separation anxiety through the summer, just like having to you know, ease away from me in the mornings um, after we've gotten out of that routine and having more maybe meltdowns about things or just having a lot more higher emotions about, you know, just simple things. But it's just kind of that venting that has to happen when life just feels weird. Sure. Yeah. 
I also just briefly, Danielle, want to give a little bit of context for the listener. We're recording this episode in August. So given the transformative, ever-changing nature of this COVID thing and the school year coming up, when this episode comes out in the early fall, things may be different in our culture. So I just wanted to give that little caveat for the listener. But on that tip, Danielle, you talk about the depth of emotion. It's interesting because you know Whitney and I are best friends. We are on this podcast and we've talked a lot about our childhood and certain elements of our childhood. And you know, one thing that I've similarly had a challenge with as you're describing your daughter and how sensitive she is and sort of this high highs and low lows, I've had that my entire life. I've been very much an empath. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious with you guiding her and obviously, you know, helping her shape her emotional relationship to the world. What are some other techniques or, or maybe things you've investigated in terms of her being a really sensitive, empathic person? And how do you see that moving forward in her life, being that she is so receptive and so open to taking on other people's emotions? Yeah, it really is challenging dynamic. And I think those kids can have so much influence and leverage to connect with people and they can just be the brightest you know, spot in the room and just make everyone feel so happy, (laughs) but then also can, you know, create a tsunami that is hard to deal with as their, you know, dependent adult. And it's a high task as a parent to parent a child like that, because you have to be very strong yourself emotionally and like really master emotional intelligence yourself first in order to be able to teach that on to, you know, a child like that. And that's a struggle of our generation of parents is that we weren't treated in that way. We don't know how to be able to react to big emotions, you know, in a healthy way. We are still struggling with boundaries and, you know, having our own triggers that aren't healed from our childhoods. We're coming from a place of not being set up for success with that. And that's a lot of what I do when I work with parents that are my clients is we kind of break down where that disconnect is or why it is so hard for them to react differently to this child that's in front of them than they were reacted to as a kid. And just because you read a book that tells you how to do it differently doesn't mean that that just like sinks in and becomes your instinct. You really have to work at rewiring how your brain, you know, takes that um, interaction and how you view their behavior and how you jump to a conclusion and and, you know, become reactive in that fight or flight state yourself as a parent. So what I have done is, is just really tried to rewire how I view her behavior and how I know that it is her having a hard time rather than her trying to manipulate a situation or just get what she wants or be, you know, selfish or a brat or what, however you want to interpret it. I give her all of the grace and say that she's doing the absolute best that she can in that moment to, you know, have as much impulse control as she can and and cope with the skills that she has. But she's having a hard time because it's bubbled into this, you know, big reaction. So I am her adult. I am here to help. So the best way that I can help is to be responsive to what I know works for her. And for her, she needs to have like physical reassurance and to be able to kind of regulate back to calm with someone and be able to kind of walk her through some steps to calm down, like getting a drink of water and doing some breathing, getting a stuffed animal, blowing her nose, things like that. But I am trying to teach her that that's kind of who she is and how she reacts to things so that 
she doesn't think that there's anything wrong with that, but that she knows how to kind of set herself up for success or know how to, you know, help herself feel better when maybe mom's not there to help her through it for her. But every kid is different. And so that's why each parent kind of has to figure out what works for their child. And, and the hardest part of it all is kind of keeping our own reactions in check. Yeah, for sure. And it's so beautiful hearing parents like you talk about these things. It reminds me of a friend of mine and Jason's named Tamara, who does conscious parenting coaching. And again, even though I'm not a parent, I love seeing people and hearing them talk about these things because I just think it's so incredibly important to teach people these things. And it's interesting too, because one thing I'd love to hear you speak on, Danielle, is how you know, your podcast is so much, it seems to me, and your work with just failing motherhood in general is so much about like helping people with all the struggles of parenting, right? And it's like, it's kind of reminding us that it's okay to make mistakes and that every mother and, and, and father as well are, could make mistakes along the road. It's no such thing as being perfect. But what's interesting to me with a lot of the things that you're talking about here, it kind of sounds like, wow, if we can just like create more self-acceptance with kids and be gentler with them. And when I hear these things, I think, wow, like how much would my life have been different if I was raised that way? Wow. And looking back and thinking, not necessarily feeling like resentful towards my parents because I really love my parents. But I think as adults, when we become conscious and work on ourselves, we can identify the shortcomings of our parents mm-hmm. in some ways. And like, I kind of try to rein myself in. I don't want to get into this place of blame and like, all my problems are because of them, you know, and I would do things so differently. But I kind of think no matter what we do as parents, that's probably going to be the mindset of children when they're older is like looking back and being like, wow, I wish I was raised differently. So yeah, it almost feels like no matter what you do, you're still going to in some sense impact your child in, in a way that they may have to undo when they're older, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a high pressure. Do you think that's true? (laughs) Yeah, it's like, yeah, there is this pressure. It's kind of hard to verbalize. I know you know what I mean here because there's this idea of like, there are so many things that we can do and adjust. But I wonder like, were my parents thinking that they were doing a really great job when they were raising me when I was really little, Mm -hmm. you know? And again, I'm not saying that they didn't do a good job, but like some of the things that you're bringing up here are things that I don't think my parents did probably because they just didn't have the tools back then. Yeah. So you can't really like blame them because the culture was different and the education that they had as parents was different. And some parents are more into figuring these things out than others. Some people take more of an intuitive approach. Mm -hmm. And of course, that even happens today, despite all the resources we have. Some parents choose to do things very differently or do things the way their parents did them. I would think for me, if I do become a parent, like I could actually get a little bit stuck in that trying to do things right mentality. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you struggled with that and or if your clients and the people that you're having on your podcast struggle with that as well. Yeah. I think because we have so much information at our fingertips right now that you can be so easily overwhelmed with wanting to know all the things and do all the things and be all the things as a parent and, you know, have a very high bar for ourselves because 
surely if it's on Pinterest, we should be able to do it. (laughs) But that's just not feasible because we are still human beings ourselves and we have a very limited capacity. And like when you become a parent, you almost think that like your day is going to expand. Like now you're going to have 30 hours and eight of them are going to be now designated parenting. And then you just keep up like the rest of your life. And it's just like, no, it just kind of permeates everything you do and you don't have any more time to do it. And so that, you know, you can only do so much and we do the best we can with what we have. And when we know better, we can do better. And that is the beautiful thing of, you know, continued brain research and all of the things that we have been learning and sharing with each other is like the view of a child has grown significantly in just the past few generations from being a complete, you know, they should be seen and not heard. They have no contribution to society to evolving to, well, they're a blank slate and we can just like create them into whatever we want them to be until now we're really realizing that the first seven years of a child's life is when their subconscious is wired and it's kind of like downloading software that they then kind of cap off and run on autopilot for the rest of their life. And it still can ebb and flow, but it doesn't happen at the forming rate of like 1 million neuron connections per second that it does in the first seven years where like 90% of the brain, you know, grows. So now that we know that we can really emphasize the things that matter most for that development and be able to really prioritize meeting kids needs in that time and space. And this is something that you know, isn't well known enough, but like a dollar invested in the first seven years of a person's life pays off seven times that investment when they're a grown up because you don't have to invest as a society in all of these too little too late remedies like jail time or unemployment or welfare or all these other things that of ways that we help people if we just invested in the earliest years when it matters the most and can be maximized then so much of that is even eliminated as a need. And that's just not how our society funds things and views things right now. So that's why there's that disconnect. But the way that I've personally dealt with that as a parent is, you know, having grace for myself to say, like, I'm going to do the best I can today. I'm going to make the best decisions that I know, you know, that I can today. And at the end of the day, I'm not going to beat myself up for all the ways I failed because I'm still loving my kids more than anyone else will. I'm still the expert of them more than anyone else will ever be. And I do have some confidence in the knowledge that I have of child development to know like, hey, if I'm reading to them every night and I am making them a priority for some quality time and paying attention to them, you know, with some eye contact. And if I'm having, you know, longer conversations with them, introducing a lot of vocabulary. And if I'm just making sure that they have two you know, present parents and we, you know, have a roof over our head and we're paying our bills and, you know, providing some resources for them, then we're doing a pretty good job. (laughs) And, and I think you just need to know what things matter most in that you can like, not have them have this huge elaborate birthday party or like all of these other things that that could be like the frosting on the the top of the cake, but that's not going to make or break them as a human being. Oh, I was just going to say that I love that post you had on your Instagram, which is you are the mom your kids need. Yes. That is like the take home message that I really try to drive home from every episode of Failing Motherhood. 
Because when you believe that, then you really can move forward and, you know, have some confidence in your decisions and and do it well. I love that you're giving at least me and I'm I'm sure other listeners too are feeling maybe some sense of maybe relief is a little bit of the emotion I would characterize what I'm feeling now because I think for me, Daniel, one of my biggest fears around the idea of parenthood, because again, I'm not a parent, mm-hmm. that <laughs> that despite my best efforts and despite loving them and guiding them as best I can, that I'm going to screw them up. Yes. <laughs> like that, that, that probably <laughs> is at the top because I've really sat with this and Whitney knows because we've had so many conversations over the years about this and, and it's an ongoing conversation of what are the source and the depths of my fears around parenthood? And I think you're really nailing it around, yeah, I mean, I'm terrified of screwing them up, of not just what Whitney alluded to at one point in life of of them looking back and being like, yeah, great job, dad. You did this and didn't do that and blah, blah, blah. And now I have all this trauma and like, ugh. Mm-hmm. But really, that is the core of it is, is that despite my best efforts and best intentions that they will be, quote, screwed up somehow. But the tenet of your podcast and and your brand that you're talking about is allowing for failure. Like it's a built-in thing. Mm -hmm. And it's weird because, you know, in some aspects of life, I'm not afraid to take risks. I'm not afraid to fail. I mean, being an entrepreneur and and an artist and all that, it's kind of baked into that, right? Right. But with parenthood, it terrifies the hell out of me, the idea that I might fail. So for you not only in your own psychology, and I want to get it a little bit in as we go on into neurobiology and behavioral psychology, because you said a few buzzwords that piqued my mind and went, oh, I want to talk to her about that. But Mm -hmm. with your own fears of failure or you coaching, you know, other parents who have similar fears like I'm bringing up, what do you say to them? And what do you say to yourself if some of that inner talk comes of like, you're going to screw them up, don't do this. How do you talk yourself and other people through that? Yeah. Well, what I realized is that it is so insanely common because I was having so many conversations with parents and then I sent out an anonymous survey so that I could get even more honest responses. And I asked, you know, what fears do you have as a parent and what are the things that you're afraid to admit? And I got like over a hundred anonymous responses from people that had been following me. And like, they all either said, I feel like I'm failing, or they said, I feel like I'm screwing everything up, or I feel like I'm screwing up my kids. And like, this was a huge theme throughout the survey. And I was expecting parents to say like, oh, I just hope nothing happens to my kids or like, you know, I don't want them to get sick or, you know, things like that. But it was this huge thread that came through and I realized, but then they also said, but, you know, I feel like I'm the only one. And I'm like, okay, well, then we need to talk about this because if this is like an innate thing that is true of like almost everyone's parenting journey then we need to normalize it and take away the stigma of shame that's attached, feeling like you're the only one, because we're just not all that unique. (laughs) There's so much more we have in common as parents in this experience. And a lot of it is this journey is humbling. And so much about being a parent is getting face to face with all of your weaknesses, and all of the things that you didn't even know you suck at (laughs) and having to deal with it on a daily basis and either choosing to like not even care or you choose to engage and continue to grow and, you know, be apologizing and trying again the next day. And if you are willing to engage with that journey, 
then yeah, you're going to have failures. You're going to screw up. You're going to lose your mind on your kids. You're going to say things you said you'd never say and do things you said you'd never do. (laughs) But if you continue to center yourself and come back and start over day after day, and if you're willing to apologize to your kids and you understand how influential your relationship is, then you're going to keep making the main things the main things. And there really is only like an 80-20, I think, you know, results rate for how good of a parent we can really be because (laughs) we're just never going to hit that perfection level as a human with flaws. So if that's true, then we do have to, you know, come face to face with our tempers and with our triggers and with all the ways that we are selfish still, (laughs) even though we love this human being with everything in us and we would die for them, we still get very annoyed and irritated at them. <laughs> and and we just have to continue to keep trying. And so that's really what my message is, is that you, there are things, of course, there are things that are going to screw up your kids. And there is so much that is outside of our control as parents, like whatever we think we have control over is an illusion, really, because our kids are completely separate people. They are on their own trajectory in life. They have their own opinions and they have their own you know, job to do here on earth. So we're just here to kind of guide them and be their ambassador and kind of like give them a track record to go off of and some sort of like path to follow. But a lot of that is leading by example. So we have to actually be living and doing the things that we're trying to teach them And that's more of the work. So that's why I feel like parenting is called parenting. It's not childing. It's about us. It's about us as parents learning and growing and continuing to kind of evolve and get better. The journey goes on. And, you know, our kids still have a lot of things that they'll have to figure out the hard way and they'll make some bad choices, but we don't have control over that. And that's what sucks about parenting, too, is that we have to watch them crash and burn. And like nothing hurts a parent more than seeing your kids screw up and fail. And we wish that we could keep them from any pain ever, but that, you know, won't allow them to kind of grow into who they're going to be eventually. And so we can't rob them of that. So yeah, it's hard. (laughs) (laughs) It's wonderful how open you are about all this. And I feel like you talking about that survey is, is super interesting. And I'm curious, you know, in terms of specificity in your own life, Danielle, you know, do you have any specific examples of, and, and if you're open to sharing, mm-hmm. of a situation that happened maybe where you reacted in a certain way and then the process of, I don't know, forgiving yourself? I mean, what's that like for you as a parent where maybe you have a situation where may, perhaps you judge yourself of, oh, I didn't do my best or I didn't show up as in my mind as brilliant or caring or patient as I wanted to be. You know, after a situation happens that's like that, what's your internal process psychologically? You know, is there forgiveness work you have to do? Is it maybe, you know, asking for forgiveness or saying you're sorry to your kids? You know, in the nitty gritty way, could you get a little bit more specific on what that process is like when you maybe show up in a certain way and feeling like you, quote, screwed up? What do you do after that for yourself? Yeah, I have to say that thankfully, my personal personality is not one that is chained to a really, really strong inner critic. And I know that's almost like the exception at this point. Yeah. (laughs) You're like a mutant. Seriously, that's like your ex-woman power. Like, I don't beat myself up. Who are you? I know, right? (laughs) 
Wow. And I just realized that doing, you know, a lot of a lot more self-development growth and, you know, personality tests and talking to my husband because he's the exact opposite. He has the world's loudest inner critic. Is he um I know that you're an Enneagram yeah. seven. Is he an Enneagram one? He still can't figure himself out, but I think he leans most to a one. Yeah. Got it. We had an Enneagram expert on our <laughs> on our show recently. And so when I saw that on your website, I was like, oh, great. I understand what this means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he, I think, has a harder time with beating himself up at the end of the day saying, I didn't handle this well, and I should have done this and, you know, really giving himself a run through. But I was a competitive gymnast for about 14 years. And I really think that one, my parents did a pretty good job. And my husband and I were joking about this last night. I was the firstborn. And as they kept parenting, like the wheels fell off the train. So my, my siblings don't have as good of a story. But I felt like things went down pretty well for me. And in that they, you know, had a really good relationship with me for a good solid part of my childhood. And I really grew up mostly at gymnastics. I mean, I was there 20, 25 hours a week outside of school. So I think a lot of of how my personality was formed was through that trial and error of just having to fail at, you know, a a highly dangerous competitive skill for, you know, hundreds of times of practicing it before I could go compete it and really kind of working through that growth mindset that we would now call a growth mindset. I think I was able to develop in a healthy way where now it's almost like, you know, we all are trying to fight this fixed mindset idea that there's something inherently wrong with us if we aren't able to do things the best the first time. So for my husband, what I've had to help him through and and other parents through that have much more of that anxiety and that mom guilt and that idea around like I am failing is just being able to see that like, do you care? Yes, of course you care. That's why you're so wrapped up in you know, wanting to do it well. Do you, you know, continue to try every day, even when you're exhausted? Yes. Do you love your kids more than anyone else? Yes, absolutely. Like, are you trying your best to learn and grow? And as you take on new information about your kids or about school or about whatever, are you able to change your mind and, you know, make a new choice? Then yes, then you're doing a great job. And you have to be able to believe that at the end of every day that you're you're doing your best and your best will somehow be good enough for your kids. And they're your kids for a reason. Like I wouldn't be able to parent my friend's kids <laughs> at all, like in any way, shape or form, as well as I'm able to parent mine, because I think there is chemically a connection. There's just the experience over time, the the track record of really knowing each other. And I think the intimacy that grows in a relationship with all of those breakdowns of having to repair your relationship over and over and over all the times that we screw up really does bond us in a way that like this relationship was meant for. So you can't bond if you don't have to repair the relationship and you can't repair the relationship if nothing bad goes wrong. So actually, we're doing a good job if we're, you know, finding reasons to apologize and show our kids by example, that humility and that growth. It reminds me in in some ways of the wabi-sabi philosophy that is kind of endemic to the Japanese culture of 
you're talking about the strength through challenge, the strength through these really tough situations that that it strengthens the bond. And I think that that again in the wabi sabi philosophy, I'm I'm kind of obsessed with Japanese culture that the imperfections make something stronger. That when sculptors or glassmakers or an artisan creates something beautiful, they will intentionally press their thumb into it or crack it slightly or make a flaw in it because in their opinion, the imperfection of it is what makes it beautiful. So I just love that you you have that philosophy, Danielle. And, and I want to jump back really quickly to some of the tidbits you mentioned in terms of wiring and neurobiology and some of the buzzwords, I guess, used around behavioral psychology. Yeah. In terms of your kids, you mentioned about the massive amount of brain development and wiring and neuroplasticity. But I'm curious in terms of you as an adult, you talked about we rewiring and what are some of the techniques that you love in terms of neuroplasticity, rewiring your brain, maybe overcoming some of these old limiting belief systems? And how do you employ that as a parent as, and as an adult in your life? What's that like for you? What kind of techniques do you have for that? Yeah, great question. I have asked every single one of my clients that I'm working with through coaching that's a mom to write an affirmation. And that was not something that I did a whole lot personally prior to this work, but I've just really understood the value of that repeated like power of our mind to focusing on, you know, creating this new pathway of thinking that it takes because our brain isn't firing at the same level of forming that it was, you know, back in the day, we have to have much more repetition to make that a strong pathway for our brains to think. So affirmations in, you know, writing them in a way that is the way that we aspire to think and then going back to them and focusing on them at least daily is one of the big ways that I recommend for parents to start to change their mindset and their perspective, at least when it comes to their own view of themselves as a parent. And, you know, speaking in the affirmative of like, I am patient, I am playful, I am kind, I am present, you know, I am going to try again the next day, just like simple phrases like that, that really help reiterate the things that we want to believe about ourselves and the ways that we're showing up. We just need to keep thinking them. And it really does wire our mind to, you know, think that way then. And the other big thing is like what we focus on is what multiplies. And when that comes to parenting, if we are continuing to obsess about the negative things, the behaviors that we are really bothering us from our kids or the things that aren't working or all of the ways that the culture of our home or the way that life is right now is not where we wanted it to be. And we keep you know, reiterating that, well, this should be this way and my kids should be this way and I should be this way. Then we're just going to see more and more reasons for that. But if we can focus on the good and seeing the value in what is working and really reinforce positively the ways that we do see our kids learning and growing and, you know, following directions and, you know, being kind and doing the things that we've asked them to do a million times, then that will multiply and will create that snowball momentum in the right direction. And every time that I meet with clients, I mean, I celebrate their wins and I reiterate the progress that we're seeing over the perfection or the product at the end result. 
and we just keep focusing on, okay, if this is working, then we'll just keep moving in that direction. And, you know, what are all the ways that kids are listening or, or doing, you know, what you asked? And, and I asked them to have a family meeting if they have older kids and ask their kids like how they want to feel in their home and how can we all help each other feel that way in our home? And, you know, like what values are important to us as a family and like becoming really intentional about those things then makes you focus on those things and points, your brain points it out when you see those things. And it just becomes that confirmation bias over time that helps you really have a healthy mindset on how things are going rather than, you know, we'll always have a reason to complain about <laughs> something. I'm also, you know, super curious in, in terms of keeping your inner child alive, Danielle, because I feel like with parents that I talk to, well, one of their challenges sometimes is, I suppose, feeling that adulting, hashtag adulting sometimes with, you know, bills and mortgage and cars and work and life insurance plans and taking care of their parents. And I mean, all of the things I suppose that we engage in as as adults in, in our current society that I guess my question is, do you find that it's harder to keep your inner child alive because of all the adulting and adult responsibilities? Or do your girls help that inner child stay alive vis-a-vis playing with them, teaching them, learning with them, getting excited about what they're excited about? So what's your relationship to your inner child as a parent and how do you keep that alive in your life? Yeah, I think that is a road that every parent has to walk down and struggles with uh, because they're it's like a yes and no. I think there's always that competing tension between all of our adult responsibilities and our inner child that wants to come out and play. And just like work-home balance doesn't exist, I don't think that there's a good balance between checking all the boxes and getting our bills paid and also you know, making sure that we're taking care of ourselves. So I have talked to a lot of parents that are surprised by how much they don't like playing with their kids and don't want to admit that out loud. And I taught in a classroom as a preschool teacher and as an infant toddler teacher prior to home visiting, prior to all of this. And I enjoyed being in a classroom and leading these lessons and playing on the floor with these little kids. And now as a parent, I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> and as a parent, you think like, well, what's wrong with me if I don't want to play with my own kids that like I created and go through, you know, these phases that I went through as a kid. And there's some things that will like pique your interest if you have a toy like from your actual childhood that you can introduce to your child or, or maybe like introduce them to a movie that you remember loving as a kid. But for the most part, I think that the whole weight of responsibilities and the mental load that it takes to parent and all of the care routines in the first few years really wipe out anything extra that you could put to those like quote unquote fun times and relaxing with your kids and wanting to play with them. And so then that just adds guilt on because we aren't doing the thing that we know we should be doing as a parent. And then that creates even more of that, you know, spiral of resentment. Well, you know, I don't want to have to do that when I never get to do anything I like to do. And, you know, I would rather be doing this. And, and so it's just an inner battle. So I think when parents are able to, like every parent kind of wrestles through some sort of identity crisis of like, who am I now that I'm a parent? And I still like the things I liked before I was a parent, but now like everything just seems like 
I don't have time for that anymore. And so I'm kind of losing my North Star because some things that mattered before don't matter anymore. And I don't, you know, I don't know how to spend my time. But when you come on the other side of that, which is a different path for every parent, I think we start to realize, okay, I am a healthier, happier, funner to be around parent that can be more playful when I'm a healthy whole person myself first. And that self-care or whatever you want to talk about, like for that looks different for every parent. But when there's still parts of my day-to-day life that make me light up and remember who I was before parenting, then that creates the ball of energy that I need to kind of get through and muddle through all of these care routines and the rest of the adulting that I'm responsible for. So I think that it's a really key thing to build back into your life as a parent if you don't have that right now. And that can be really simple of just like, you know, waking up before your kids and having a cup of coffee and, you know, meditating or reading or doing some yoga or doing something that takes care of you that feels indulgent or, you know, being able to get away traveling every once in a while without the kids or having some sort of a creative outlet, I think can really, really, really help. And I know that it's helped me a lot. I mean, I've always worked since having my daughters, but I knew that that was part of me. Like I'm a better parent when I still remember that I'm a person too. And I need that adult interaction. I need to have other things that I'm responsible for that you know, light me up. And like, I, of course, it adds a lot of work to my plate too to manage all those things at once. But if I drop my kids off at school and then I pick them up later, like we are happier to see each other. We had the privilege of missing each other and we get to be more present in that shorter amount of time that we're together than if I was just arbitrarily with them all day because I'm supposed to be with them all day, but we don't enjoy that time or really maximize that in any way. It's not, that's not what's healthier for both of us, but every parent kind of wrestles with that guilt of yeah, what should I do? It's really interesting too, because for me and Jason, not being parents, it's tough because we both get presented every once in a while with like this question of, should we have kids? You know, not together. We're not dating, but just like separately as friends, we talk about this a lot. And you know, Jason's girlfriend, there's been an ongoing discussion about children and that's come up a lot for him. I'm curious to hear you talk about that too, Jason. And for me, you know, it, it is also slightly different as a woman because there's this like clock ticking, you know, and trying to make up your mind uh, about whether or not I want to be a mom. And that's an interesting thing to examine too, especially a lot of my friends have kids and I'm, I'm sitting here thinking like, am I the only one that's doesn't have kids. And like, you know, a lot with so many people choosing to have children, there's not that many people I know that choose not to have children, mm-hmm. at least in this stage of my life. And that's interesting cognitively. And and for you talking about all of these kind of trade-offs in a way, like trying to make sure that you're still nourishing yourself beyond being a parent. And that's, I think, what makes it tricky for me is I wonder what I even like being a parent and like what I feel like I'm losing myself or, Mm -hmm. you know, you're kind of giving some things up. But yeah, I guess like I struggle with that a lot as well as you hear kind of these cliche things like, well, parenting is tough, but it's worth it. You know, I would Mm -hmm. never trade it and all of those things. But then I also hear a lot of my friends that seem really stressed out a lot of the time. (laughs) I'm thinking, 
gosh, like I'm already stressed out. And like, sometimes my dog feels like a lot of work. Like I can't imagine like having a child too. And I love kids. Like I always thought that I would be a mom. And now I'm a little less attached to that outcome. I'm kind of like, well, maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. Like I just, I don't feel like I I mind either way at this stage in my life. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think the more that I've been around my friends that are parents, the more hesitant I start to become because I feel like I'm seeing some joy, of course, Mm -hmm. but there's like a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. And from the outside, it starts to feel kind of unappealing, to be honest. And Jason, I feel like you verbalized a lot of similar things and you're kind of like, why should I become a dad? Like my life's pretty good or... My life's kind of hard as it is already. Like, why would I add something new into the mix? Would you say that, Jason? Yeah, it's kind of like a dual-edged sword to me in the sense of, well, there's another element to it, okay? It's that with my friends' kids or my younger cousins or whatever the case may be, you know, I've kind of naturally always had this role of like, yay, Uncle Jason, he's going to play and he does funny voices and he's crazy and he's like 50 (laughs) characters in one. You know, and then at the end of the night, I'm like, I'm going home. Cool. Enjoy. You know, like it's like when the tough parts come, I'm like, I'm out of here. You guys handle this. You're the parents. <laughs> so, you know, I get to be the fun uncle. I get to be the one that immediately my entire life kids just and to this day, you know, kids just gravitate toward me. And and I love that level of interaction because I feel like I, I can meet them on the level of play and fantasy and fun and all those things. Mm-hmm. But to piggyback on what Whitney is alluding to, I feel like there's sort of this dualistic fear that I have that I'm still working through psychologically of the fear of loss of freedom because, you know, for my business, not this year, but typically I travel a lot and there's a lot of travel involved. Being away from home, there's a lot of creative endeavors that I'm really, really focused on. And so I suppose in that regard, and I don't mean this in a negative way where I'm beating myself up, but there's a part of me that's very selfish. That's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't want to give that up. I really like that. Mm -hmm. But then to Whitney's point, like being an entrepreneur and all the adulting things. And we mentioned all the things that one focuses on as an adult. And I have a whole bevy of animals that I care for. And I have a girlfriend and I have a a mom who's aging that I want to take care of. And then it's like to think about throwing a child in that mix. It's like, oh my God, it feels like psychologically like that would just be slamming the overwhelm button. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So I'm very aware of, I suppose, the macro fears that I have around all of it. And I think, you know, that's affected my relationship. I've been in relationships where my partners have said, I definitely want to have kids or in in a few cases, I'm ready to have kids now. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. This is, this is not going to happen. I don't know that I have a conclusion necessarily, Daniel. I'm sort of like going by Whitney's prompt of, yeah, Yeah. the the, the loss of freedom, the fear of screwing them up and the fear of being completely overwhelmed scares the absolute hell out of me. Well, and I think you're totally founded with that. I think that it's tricky because it's really tough to talk to parents about these things because it's almost like you're on two different sides. And once you cross one side, it's like you can no longer understand what it was like to be on the side to begin with, if that makes sense. like I think the standard answer I hear from a lot of parents is, Yeah, it's really tough, but it's worth it. Every once in a while, I've had really open conversations with some parents and they're like, honestly, if you're on the fence about being a parent, like don't become one. (laughs) Like I remember this one talk I had with my friend and her husband. And and this actually, I feel it kind of tends to come from men more than women, which is interesting. And 
I've also heard the same thing about childbirth. There was uh, conversations or articles that I came across semi-recently where people were saying that women felt like they needed to paint childbirth as easier than it was because they didn't want people to be afraid to give birth. And yet some people were starting to talk more about how hard it was to give birth and saying, I really wish that somebody had told me some of these challenges before I decided to become pregnant Mm. because I felt like I was left so in the dark and there was almost like this unspoken pact that women had, like, don't tell anyone how hard it is to give birth because, you know, otherwise less women will want to become parents. And I remember hearing that and thinking, oh my gosh, that's horrible. Mm -hmm. Like, have I been kind of like misled to think that childbirth and parenting, motherhood is like more wonderful and easy than it actually is. And like, I kind of felt really frustrated hearing that. And then when I have these honest conversations with parents, I feel really grateful for it because I'd rather know what I was getting myself into Mm -hmm. versus make a decision and then it being a lot more challenging. And I, and I think actually that's important, not just for me, but in general, because our society right now is still very much advocating for parenthood. It's like mm-hmm. kind of this idea, like if you don't have kids, there's something weird about you or, yeah. or well, why aren't you? Like, are you being selfish? There's like this strange pressure to have kids. And I'm somebody, speaking of tests, one thing I talk a lot about on the show, Danielle, is the four tendencies and, and my tendency as a questioner. So I don't do anything before asking why mm-hmm. and getting as much information as I can about it because I don't, I'm not just somebody that does something just because I'm told to do it. So I think my natural uh, desire when it comes to parenthood is wanting to gather a lot of information, but I feel like it's been a struggle. And then simultaneously, when I see a lot of parents and mothers in particular struggling a lot, I found myself feeling less and less inclined to want to become a mother myself. And it's become incredibly mentally challenging as a result because I find more and more reasons not to become a mom. And that that in another way makes me feel a little bit sad. And then I wonder, am I sad just because the society has programmed me to be sad <laughs> and programmed me to... You know what I mean? It's yeah. like no longer the easy thing of like, if you want to become a parent, just become a parent. It's not that simple. No. Because it seems like there's so much to weigh out. And I think because I'm such a questioner, I'm left with all of these questions and it's analysis paralysis for me. Yeah. I think it's not fair because once you become a parent, it's almost like you signed an agreement that says you chose this and this is a gift. So therefore you're not allowed to complain. Right. And that's what makes everyone feel like they can't actually talk about how hard it is in an honest, authentic way. Because then... Plus, like, I'm sure there's like that guilt of you never want to admit how bad it is because you don't want to make your kids feel bad. Yes. Yes. Because it's not about them. It's not that they're a terrible person. It's just the experience is so hard. And it's so different now in 2020 than raising kids was and probably was intended, you know, because our society is not meant to support families in the ways that they could. And I would argue should, if you're going to put that expectation out there, and if you're going to basically have 
parents raising the next generation, it's kind of a big deal and it's a lot of work. So like we could use some help when it comes to, you know, simple things like postpartum checkups and, you know, more emphasis and awareness on supporting new moms through, you know, depression and anxiety and all of the things that we know and are, are talking about a little bit more now. But, you know, childcare is a disaster in this country when it comes to finding something that is accessible and affordable. Like there's about one spot for every four kids, I think nationwide, and it's not affordable in any way, shape or form. And so that's like this untalked about battle too, because you're supposed to lean on your extended family. Well, all the extended family now for this generation is still working because they're working, you know, a lot older and a lot of us have moved away or we're on military and there's just like so many more challenges than there ever seemed to be. And like, it just feels like it's trending in an even more challenging like direction when it feels like all of the policies that are being made are still reiterating all of those same factors. So we don't have, you know, a supportive village. We don't have affordable ways to have the healthcare our family needs and to, you know, pay our bills without added stress. And so, no, like being a parent is not set up to be an easy feat, but it isn't talked about enough on the other side. And so we all just kind of blindly sign up for it because that's the way our society works and don't question it like you are. And I think that that's a really, really important thing to do. Because the more that I think parents felt blindsided by this effect, and the more that they deal with kind of those repercussions of this isn't what I thought it was going to be, and this is way harder than I ever wanted it to be, then, you know, that creates even more stress on that child that's now, you know, hasn't been asked to be in that position. Yeah. And so, like, it's just still mind boggling that we can you know, be allowed to essentially accept and create ourselves to be now parents without any training or any, you know, orientation course, you know, which we joke about. But it's like, I just talked to a parent that I was working with last night. And he's like, you have to take this eight hour boat orientation to rent this boat and we camp this weekend. And I was like, that's more training than any parent ever got. (laughs) (laughs) What is wrong with this picture? (laughs) It's so interesting you bring that up, Danielle, because because you having the archetype of your parents growing up, you you briefly mentioned, you know, being the first child, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of you preparing or not preparing yourself, did you lean on some of the methods and archetypes from your parenting, you know, from your parents? Were there books you read? Were there, pun intended, you know, courses you took? Like when you knew you were going to become a parent, Mm-hmm. What did you do to prepare for that, having you know no training and no system and no structure in our society set up to support that? How'd you dive into that? How'd you learn? Yeah, thankfully, my degree in college was on child development. So oh, wow. I went to University of Nebraska in Lincoln and got a degree that was essentially giving me a teaching certificate from birth through third grade with like some special ed and human development and all sorts of things combined. So. In that regard, I did have some training, (laughs) Uh, you know, beyond what the average parent would. And I had been working in classrooms at a school and I had been supporting parents through a home visiting program through Save the Children for several years prior to becoming a parent. And so I felt like I had almost overinflated expectations where I felt like I knew what I needed to know 
and I had a really good idea of what it was going to be like. So therefore, I was going to nail it. (laughs) Wow. And that was not the case because the dynamic in like the relationship between like hanging out with your niece and nephew or hanging out with like other people's kids in a classroom is just not the dynamic that the parent-child relationship is. And, you know, that's maybe an aspect that you just can't really, you know, know what to expect until you're there. But the 24-7 aspect of parenting where you're getting up at all hours of the night and, you know, you're always having to think about them, you know, for every decision about your schedule for the day or travel or all of those things. And then, you know, constantly having things thrown off by a random fever that throws your whole day, you know, because they're sick now or whatever it is, like you can't take a sick day anymore. Like it's just becomes so overarching and you you just, nobody tells you that. So you just all of a sudden have this like panic of like, I can't go back on this decision. Like this is, this is my life now. And I don't know if I was ready for this because you're never going to be ready. But you just think like it's going to be great. And so I felt like when I was starting to talk to my friends about it and I was trying to open up about like, this is really hard. I had my two daughters are 15 months apart. So I, by surprise, got pregnant with my second when my first was only five months old, which was not planned. And so that was, you know, an expectation I had to deal with. Thankfully, it's paid off now because they are both girls and they're best friends. But and before that, the first few years were a blur where my, my second, I ended up having to have a C-section because she was breech and I was healing from that C-section with a 15-month-old. I couldn't really even still lift up, but she needed to be in her high chair and her crib and all of the things. And my, my husband was traveling a ton and we didn't have any family in town. And so I started joining a mom's group and I started talking about like, hey, this is really hard and being like honest about it. But I was scared to be honest about it because it seemed like everybody else had it together and could figure it out. And it feels like there's that expectation where it's like, oh, if you become a parent, then you just like know what to do. Like you're not supposed to not know what to do or admit that you don't know what you're doing. Like (laughs) that's a big no-no. You'll be judged for that. So just suck it up and pretend and fake it. Well, I was like, I'm not faking it. This is way out of my league. And I have a degree in this. So how are y'all handling this? Because you (laughs) don't have the degree that I have. And I thought I was better prepared. And in some ways I was, but in a lot of ways I still wasn't. And so the more that I started to talk to other moms and that they would, you know, be honest back, then I realized like, oh my gosh, like we are doing the hardest job in the world with no training and no manual and no village and like nothing handed to us. And like, but it's important work. Like we are forming human beings in like their most influential brain development time. Like what is going on here? So that's really what made me start my company so that I could help, you know, more parents one-on-one. Cause I feel like that is like, if meeting kids needs is the most important thing, well, meeting parents needs then allows them to meet their their kids' needs. And that, you know, allows kids to grow up healthy because my worldview really is everything that grownups currently struggle with, like whether they are depressed or in therapy or are a criminal or a murderer or like whatever it is that, that parents are, or that grownups are struggling with, it all can be linked back to probably somewhere, someone not meeting a 
core psychological need for them in their first seven years of life. And if that's true, why aren't we doing anything about that? (laughs) Oh, that's such a great question. It kind of goes back to what I brought up earlier. It's like, can you really address all of those things? Like, are we ever going to meet every single need of our children? I think part of what makes it complicated is that if we as parents didn't get our needs met, a lot of us are still figuring that out around the age that we're having children. Yes. I just saw this video yesterday, I think, on TikTok, and it was a really good one. So I'll share the specifics of it. It was a 25-year-old girl saying that when she was raised, she had to do chores as punishment. And she said, here I am at 25 years old, still associating things like doing laundry as something really negative. Mm. And it's I think her message was how important it was for parents not to use things like chores as like a punishment or something that they're not going to enjoy doing because it will have that ripple effect throughout their whole lives. And it was just so wonderful to see that and sad at the same time because I think that parents is are always doing the best that they can and best that they know how. And a lot of that is based on how they were parented. So we create this whole cycle and one of us has to break it. And yet very people that are trying to break that cycle for their children are still like dealing with their struggles. Yep. And as Jason and I learned so much through doing this podcast specifically, is it's really tough. I mean, even the two of us, you know, we work on this pretty much every single day. We're focused on growing our awareness, expanding our consciousness, working on our wellness. Mm-hmm. And we still have such a long way to go, <laughs> even though it's like in similar to kind of what you're saying, Danielle, it's like you're working on this, you're studying this and parenting is still tough for you. Yep. And gosh, I mean, my heart goes out to people who don't work on these things every single day because then they have an even more challenging part because the the education isn't there or the practice isn't there. Yeah. And so much of it is like, we don't know what we don't know. So if you never questioned your childhood, if you haven't reflected on the things that your parents did well, or maybe didn't serve you well enough and, you know, have learned new ways of doing that thing or new tools of how to get your kids to listen without spanking or without using chores as punishment, if you don't have an alternative to that, then obviously you're just going to repeat that. That's going to be your parenting style, you know, by default. Mm. And so, yeah, there's so many parents that aren't even really conscious to that choice at all, which is why things are so generational in the ways that we pass down all of our struggles is because what we don't know, we don't, we just keep handing on. If we didn't heal it, we just giving it to our kids. So just that like awakening of, of helping parents understand there are alternatives and you do need to do this work and you do have to do the work while c- continuing to parent because you can't just hit pause and like get your life together. <laughs> yeah. And also simultaneously knowing that even if you study everything and practice it regularly, you're still going to make mistakes and you're still not going to feel perfect. And for me, even though I'm not a parent, what I can associate with that is the wellness side of things and how maybe some people think that I know how to eat perfectly because that's what I'm focused on all the time. But like every single day, eating is still kind of a a struggle and a debate for me. It's like, am I going to choose this food or this food? And 
how is this going to make me feel? And do I want something for an emotional reason versus a, a physical reason? And I'm still like dealing with my own perfectionism every day, despite the knowledge that I have. And I imagine that is very similar for you as a parent. And you're noticing that a, a lot with other parents. And I think maybe that's just a huge part of the human experience in general. It's not even about parenting or wellness and health. It's We have kind of this strange conditioning and pressure to be perfect in our culture, Mm -hmm. which makes zero sense because each of us like don't, none of us feel perfect. So why do we have this constant desire to strive for perfection if nobody is really achieving that? Like it's such an odd thing. Yeah. And I love that you shared about how going to these groups can be helpful if people are being really honest with one another. And I think what I continue to learn is one of us has to find the courage to speak up and say, I'm struggling. Yeah. And as soon as one person says that, it opens up and gives permission for other people to talk about their struggles. And as much as we don't want to be, sometimes we have to be that person that takes the first step yes. and says out loud, this is hard for me. Yeah. And then we may find so many people that haven't found that courage yet, but because of us, we give them permission to say the same thing. And I think that's a wonderful part of your work and what you're doing online. Yes. Thank you. If I can go first, then yeah, I think a lot of parents can go second and third and you know, be able to just feel not so alone when they hear so many other stories that resonate with that fact and, and also feel the same way that they do and struggle with the same things they do. But I do think that comes from our conditioning of how we parent and we're parented because we have such a influence or a expectation of obedience and how we're like, we're so focused on getting our kids to comply and do what we say when we're asked and, you know, obey the first time and have all this respect for authority. And, you know, we're very micromanaging their you know, whether they go left or right or too fast or too slow. And it's all based on a parent's opinion. And we wonder why we as grownups deal with, you know, being a people pleaser or not really knowing our own voice or having attunement to our intuition and being able to advocate for ourselves and and what's right for us and have boundaries that say this isn't working for me. Well, it's because it's driven out of us as kids. Like we're not allowed to be our own person and advocate for ourselves or do what we feel is right or make, you know, healthy conscious decisions because we're just supposed to do what our parent says. And so I think we need do need to look at that disconnect and think about how we're parenting and if we're parenting in a way that is going to set up our kids for success as a grown-up in all of the ways that we feel like we're still struggling or wanting to do better ourselves. It does come down to the places that we put importance on for our kids' behavior and whether we allow them to kind of figure things out with a little, not to say that they can just do whatever they want, because absolutely they still need guardrails for, you know, how they figure things out. But like, is it, is it okay for them to be sad and mad and to not agree with us and to be able to voice their opinion and to be able to have more say over the ways that they express themselves and the clothes they wear and, you know, even the the food that they eat. Like, is it that important that we make them finish their plate or make them, you know, do all these things that 
our parents made us do. Like all of that kind of needs to be questioned, in my opinion. Oh, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> but again, I'm a questioner, so I think I have a natural <laughs> tendency to question everything. Yeah, but I'm a rebel. So so my rebelliousness uh, in terms of the archetypes Whitney's talking about with the tendencies, it, it's interesting because in terms of the do as I say, not as I do sort of archetype, that paradigm of parenting, Danielle, uh-huh. I remember there were specific situations with my mom. And I think my mom knew that I was pretty rebellious, super young. You know, it wasn't a surprise to her, but so many examples of do as I say, not as I do. And I'm not throwing, my mom's probably listening. I'm not throwing you under the bus, mom. I love you. (laughs) But I remember specifically when I was like a teenager, it was like, I want to get a motorcycle. She's like, no, we're not doing. And I'm like, and you rode Harleys when you were also in your teens and twenties. So you can't tell me no. It was like the do as I say, not as I do. Like, you're not going to get a motorcycle. I'm like, that's BS because you had them. So I'm going (laughs) to do it. So lo and behold, I went and got my license and got a motorcycle. And I was like, you can't tell me this. You know, I was very, very rebellious against that. So I'm curious if you ever catch yourself in the do as I say, not as I do paradigm. Mm. And what do you do if you ever catch yourself sort of in that mentality? Yeah, I think as parents, we catch ourselves in that way more often than we like to be (laughs) because it's so convicting when we hear words coming out of our mouth that either was definitely something that was said to us. And we're like, where did that come from? Um, I didn't want to turn into my parent. Or we just hear the truth, like smack us in the face by saying like, you can't, you know, I can't let you do this. But then you have that thought in your head that pops up that's like, you just did that. (laughs) 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 And you're just like, crap, I'm caught. I'm caught in my leg. My kids aren't old enough, I don't think, to like have the really big moment of like, you know, I'm totally not being authentic, or I'm letting them do things that I would have said I wanted to do as a kid or whatever. But how I manage my anger is definitely probably the plain point for me that is the most convicting when I'm trying to help my more explosive reaction child to, you know, contain her reaction. And, you know, I did the same thing when they wouldn't go to bed. (laughs) So I clearly don't have that mastered enough to really expect that out of her when she's still only just turned six. But like, for some reason in my mind, I have very high expectations for what that should look like. And it's just, yeah, we need to have a lot more grace for all of us. And in terms of, I guess, additional resources or guidance, of course, you have your wonderful podcast, you have your coaching services. Are there any other teachers or educators or resources that you would really want to highly recommend to the listener that they check out as well? Oh, I'm sure there's plenty. Off the top of my head, Dr. Shafali Tazbari is a really big leader in conscious parenting. And I have both her books, The Awakened Family and The Conscious Parent, I think are two of them. Highly recommend. They are deep reads, but they are really good at pointing out our insecurities and our fears as parents and how they kind of drive our decisions and how that doesn't serve us. Like if you, you know, bring your own childhood into play and say like, well, I had a really hard time making friends. So therefore I'm going to make sure that my kids in like all of these activities and that they, you know, never have that problem. Well, if your kid ends up being an introvert and that totally doesn't mesh with them, then they're going to pull inward even more. And then you created the hermit that you were trying to avoid the whole time. And so she basically points out like, 
You just need to individualize and customize all of your approaches to the kid that's in front of you, not the kid that was you as a child or like some sort of hypothetical ideal of what you would do differently. Like just get to know your kid and make the best decision for your kid. And it's different, you know, the first kid versus the second kid. And fairness doesn't exist. (laughs) But so her work is phenomenal. Dr. Dan Siegel has written several great parenting books that are really good at talking about the brain science and more of the why and the how of how to raise kids without, you know, screwing them up (laughs) or to a smaller degree of screwing them up. And one of my favorite parenting books is How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. And there's a younger version that's called like How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen. And that's one that has much more like practical, easy to apply strategies that are in short little chapter bursts of lots of play by plays and better ideas of, you know, say this instead of this and you'll get better results. So that's a a good one that I recommend all the time. And Janet Lansbury as well. I'll throw that one in there. Janet Lansbury wrote No Bad Kid, and she has a podcast where she kind of answers listeners' letters, and she gives really good practical advice too to kind of like problem-solving scenarios that are really helpful. You actually sparked a question, Danielle, in terms of how we speak to our kids. And Mm. I've seen, and I don't mean to, how do I say, diminish the fact that there are many gradations of, of this approach, but I suppose I've observed maybe two main buckets from looking at friends and relatives that have little ones. And on the one hand, I've seen people sort of do, how would I characterize this? Almost like a version of how I might speak to my animals. (laughs) Like this is a very poor way of describing it, but Uh like a certain lilt or coloration in the voice of like, okay, do you want to go do that now? Are you sure? Do you want the biscuits or do you want the scones, baby? Like sort of that, I don't know, again, how I speak to my animals sort of. And then a lot of my friends that are parents speak to them exactly the same way you and I are speaking right now. Just very, very, you know, it's not that they don't adjust their tone. Of course, they adjust their tone. But I'm curious in terms of how we use our voice in terms of tonality, inflection, pitch. How do you see that as being effective with your kids? And how do you speak to them now? And how have you spoken to them over the course of your relationship being a parent with them? Mm, Yeah, I think a lot of how we parent is like we're talking like 95% of our relationship with our kids is talking. So it's a big part of it. And through my work in classrooms, I really did learn that, you know, more of the best practice is to talk to them like another adult for the most part, you know, changing some tone and having more, you know, compassion and maybe dumbing things down a little bit. But One of the big things is just vocabulary piece alone, where like there's a 30 million word gap, which is a really important piece of research that was done. But I'll sum it up quickly, which basically they recorded in this research the amount of conversation between a parent and a child in these 30 different homes over this period of time and kind of ran all the results of how many words were said and what were the words that were said and were they positive or negative and all of this. And so they ran it down. And basically what came back is from each of the demographic areas, like it was the lowest amount of words were said in families on welfare. Then the next step up was the families that were lower class. Then again, with middle class was a little bit higher. And then, you know, higher class was the most words said. It was also the most 
vocabulary set, and it was the most positive interactions versus negative interactions. So with families that were maybe like the lowest end on welfare, there was one positive thing said versus like five corrections said to a child, you know, like more of that business talk, like go get your shoes on, stop doing that. And then it was reverse for the higher income families. It was, you know, one correction for five positive things said. And so between the two extremes, there's a 30 million word gap in just the amount of words heard by that child. And what they played out is how that affects them academically throughout the rest of their childhood. Those three-year-olds that heard you know, more words then had more expressive vocabulary in kindergarten, which makes sense. If they have more of a database of all of these words heard, they know all these sounds well, they can learn to read very quickly and have many words, more words that they can say. And then that was directly linked to their fourth reading level, because if they can learn to read well and quickly, then they read to learn and they love school and they're doing really well. And then that correlates with high school dropout rates, because if you don't love reading and reading is hard, of course, that's a more likely indicator that you're dropping out of high school. So it all goes back to how many words were said between a parent and a child in the first few years of life. And that really creates these very disparaging um, trajectories for these kids in these homes based on you know, the interactions. And so for me, when I learned that piece of research, it formed my parenting in a way that says like you talk and you talk a lot and you talk about everything and you use big words because that's how they learn big words. Like their brain is being formed at such a quick rate like a sponge It is meant to figure out what these words mean. We don't have to really dumb it down because they're constantly scanning for context and figuring it out and archiving it and creating all of these files of what our language is at a much quicker rate than at any other point in life. So we can give them more credit. So that vocabulary piece is key, but then the other piece is just that respect factor because when kids feel respected then they're going to give that respect back. And it comes down to like some of our core needs, whether we're two or whether we're 90, is to feel understood and to feel heard and seen. And like that doesn't change the younger you are. The two-year-olds still want to feel understood and heard. And we think that the things that they're trying to say are maybe not as important as the things that we have to say. But it still is a very big deal to them if they're talking about the show that they love or this character or this story or wanting this red color cup rather than the blue color cup. Like if we care about those things and give them the same level of respect we would give our friend, then they're absolutely going to give that back to us. And they're going to continue to have a really strong connected relationship with us because we're saying, hey, I get it. Like I want to hear from you. I think what you have to say is important and they're going to keep coming back to us when the things that they're talking about and caring about are of the same level of importance that we think what we're saying is important. Like when they're talking about, you know, doing drugs or pregnancies or, you know, all of these more higher stakes issues, we can't just hope that they come to us with those things, you know, at the end of this, we have to really prove ourselves the whole way of how we treat them from day one. So that was a really long-witted explanation of like, that's how we should be talking to them is with a lot of vocabulary and a lot of respect. 
Wow. It's such a, a deep well of knowledge, Danielle. And I, I just love how well-researched you are. I mean, obviously you talked about the education piece, but it seems that you are just a person who's so delightfully dedicated to going deeper down the rabbit hole of understanding yourself, understanding your children. I mean, you, you just bring so many delightful perspectives. I feel like I'm just, I'm learning in real time from you, which is <laughs> awesome. So for the listener, if you want to also keep going deeper down the rabbit hole with Danielle, we are going to link to all of the resources that she mentioned here on the episode in the show notes on our website, which again is wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We are going to link to Danielle's amazing podcast, Failing Motherhood, all of her resources on coaching. And so you can dive even deeper into her whole universe of conscious parenting. And I feel like, you know, Danielle, I want to dig even deeper into your stuff too, because this is an area obviously that that frightens me and scares me. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like honestly, after this conversation, I feel a little more at ease with, I suppose, my own somewhat valid and maybe some invalid concerns about all this. So, you know, as an aside, I feel the same way. Yeah. Right, Wit? <laughs> yeah. You are really good at putting people at ease around the subject matter. And that's such a, a wonderful gift to give the world. So thank you so much for sharing that with us and the listener. Thank you. That means a lot. So yeah, we'll have all of Danielle's podcast links, her website, all of her social media avenues and platforms so you can dig in deeper with her. And Danielle, this was just so delightful. And I just thank you for your openness, your vulnerability, your wisdom, your big heart. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.